Cairo, Seattle. This is COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Aaron Granillo. From growers to grocery stores and restaurants to food banks, when parts of the food supply chain began to break down at the beginning of the pandemic, the state found itself struggling to fill in the gaps. So this episode, we are going to follow the food supply chain in Washington state, starting at a farm in a potato field. It was only a few weeks ago when Washington's potato growers had about a billion pounds of spuds just sitting in storage with nowhere to go. We're trying to be optimistic as we can, but in the meantime, I mean, we've got growers on the brink of financial collapse. That's Chris Voitz. He's executive director of the Washington Potato Commission. He says almost all of their products go to restaurants and schools, but demand is nearly non-existent, though the farmers say they don't want that produce to go to waste. A reporter, Chris Sullivan, picks up the story from there. What's going on now, Chris? Well, it's a combination, maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit worse, depending on who you talk to. We've talked to the national potato uh, folks as well, and they say it might be a billion and a half pounds uh, that they're going to have to try to offload. And and what this is, this is not a, it's obviously not a supply problem. It's a distribution and processing problem because most of Washington's potatoes go to the processors. They become French fries. They become tater tots, things like that. And then they end up going to restaurants and schools. And, you know, you're not serving that many fries these days uh, with the restaurants the way they are. And so the question became, what do these farmers do? One, with the potatoes that they just don't want to see rot, they would love to be able to help them go to food banks. So, what, what, But they aren't set up to do that, right? So what, what, what has happened over the last month and a half or so has really been kind of interesting. It started with small potato handouts, like you'd go to a, a spot and you could pick up as many potatoes as you wanted, or you pick up a, a bag or two of, of 25 pounders, or if you're a food bank, you could load up with some pallets and stuff to try to find a way. It was really a grassroots way to get these uh, potatoes to at least to be donated, right? And uh, even in Woodenville, there was something that we found out. Even the mayor of Woodenville got involved. Uh, she noticed that there was a local event going on with the people bringing potatoes back from Othello, and they got some trucks from the city of Woodenville. They sent them over to Othello, brought back, and then that has kind of turned into a a trade or swap because the the food banks in Othello, the eastern side, by the by the in the farming communities, you know they they need toiletries and food, and so now the trucks head from Woodenville over there with stuff for their food banks, and we get the food back in from those farmers. So it's really kind of turned into a nice grassroots sharing across the Cascades. But you know the bigger issue for the farmers is. Are they going to be able to survive? I was going to say, yeah, it's not like they're making any money off of this. This is them just donating leftover products. Correct. And what we have is that what happens is that we've got this glut that they have to get through the processors when they start getting up and running because the issue is you get processors that have been closing down because they've had COVID outbreaks because in the processing plants, you've been working you know, very close. It's, it's one of those places where, you, the, where this can spread very rapidly, we've seen. And so the people who have put potatoes in the ground now, mm-hmm. when they come due and they're harvested, they can't go anywhere they, because the demand is still there from what, what is left over. And so the question becomes, how do you make them whole? Some of these farmers you know, have $800,000 total in the ground mm-hmm. for this crop, and they're not going to get anything out of it. Now, fortunately, the USDA has offered to buy you know, millions of dollars, $50 million worth of potatoes. They've also added uh, small loans now, but it's only $125,000 per farm, which, you know, to you and me sounds like an awful lot of money. But when you've got 800000 in the ground mm-hmm. that you can't really recoup, 125000 is not going to go very far to keep these folks afloat. And there are more than 200 potato growers in Washington state. And I'm not sure how many of them are going to be set up to weather this. It's not just potatoes either. Oh, no. I mean, we got growers all over the states. I mean, I know you've done stories uh, about our cherry growers who are also struggling, people who uh, try to ship gooey duck over to Asia. Yeah, that was one of the earlier ones because the live shellfish market uh, of gooey ducks, oysters, mussels, things like that, are huge. their biggest you know, folks are in the Asian Asian ring, Asian Pacific over there through China, Vietnam and whatnot. And early on, there were no 
container ships going back and forth for obvious reasons. So they couldn't get their live seafood to where it needed to go. And so they took a bath in terms of finances. Also, you know, planes weren't going over either uh, with with the live seafood there. So that's uh, the shellfish. So that, that was a big issue. I know the cherry growers are just starting to really get into the beginning of the harvest now. Uh, they've had some issues with trying to figure out exactly what to do with the farm workers there to make sure to try to keep them safe mm-hmm. as, as they harvest. Uh, but it looks like with some of the markets opening up, the fresh cherries hopefully will be able to get where they need to go and they'll be able to be better off than, say, the the potato folks. But, you know, right after cherries comes apples. And it right. just, I mean, we are an ag-dependent state in a lot of ways. We don't, you know, we don't think about it on this side of the mountains. But we are in terms of what we export. And it's going to be pretty brutal. And even if, you know, things go well from this point forward, we're going to be feeling the impacts of this on our Washington farms for, for years. As farmers face record losses, the state also fears millions of Washington residents are going hungry. Lines at food banks keep growing longer by the week as people continue to lose their jobs amid the pandemic. Demand at food banks across the state, uh, we are getting reports of 30 percent increases, even up to 300 percent increases. Thomas Reynolds is CEO at Northwest Harvest, a nonprofit supporting food banks around the states. Before the pandemic, about 850,000 people in Washington faced food insecurity. Reynolds says that number has now grown to more than 2 million, and he fears that could rise, affecting one out of every three people in the states. In order to help, the state has launched the Washington Food Fund. The campaign takes in donations, allowing hunger relief organizations to buy food and distribute it to local food banks. It's raised about $4 million to date. The goal is $11 million, but that's not even close to what's needed. The need is is very great. $5.5 million a week just to feed those individuals who are experiencing food insecurity right now. Kiran Ahuja is CEO of Philanthropy Northwest and oversees the food fund. I called her earlier this week to discuss just how severe the problem is. There was... I think very early on, a realization uh, with the impact on the communities across the state, both in the disruption of the pipeline of how food banks function in our state, where they get their donations, the tremendous number of volunteers, um, as well as the numbers that they were starting to see at food banks, folks showing up, and many for the first time. And so, you know, we've gone from one in 10 Washingtonians who were experiencing um, food insecurity uh, to a very close number um, of almost uh, one in three um, individuals who are experiencing um, food insecurity. Mm-hmm. That's a shocking number. I mean, we always knew that food insecurity is an issue. It's been a problem. I mean, 850,000 residents, that's a massive number. We're now more than mm-hmm. double that. What does that say mm-hmm. about this, this problem? Well, I think we are in unprecedented times in our country, in our world. Um, we, you know, our our state officials, our government officials have had to um, act pretty quickly and drastically in order to um, curb the tide of, uh, tide of the pandemic. And that has had a huge ripple effect, as, as we've seen. And, um, and particularly in food uh, security, you know, the entire system is set up based on private donations, and all of that was completely disrupted. And I would say, you know, a big part of this food fund is using the money that we get through the food fund actually to buy food in bulk. So because distribution chains have been disrupted, um, the way food is received through grocery stores and restaurants, and the restaurants have closed down, and there's more demand for that food from grocery stores, so food banks can't rely on it, they've really had to go to the open market to uh, to purchase this food. So we've basically been cutting checks to food banks um, on a pretty regular basis since the food fund started in early April, just so they can collectively come together, buy the food in bulk, and distribute it to the 500 or so food pantries across the state. Meanwhile, in Congress, federal lawmakers are considering the Farmers Feeding Families Act. The measure is co-sponsored by Washington Representative Kim Schreier, It would give food banks more money to buy surplus crops from farmers. For now, the Washington State Department of Agriculture says it has cobbled together resources from federal, states, and private donors to buy food for people in need.
Governor Jay Inslee laid out new rules this week to protect agriculture and food processing workers. Amongst the many things we're doing to protect uh, agricultural workers, uh, we need workers in small cohorts, not more than 15 people together, that are protected from exposure to people, other people working. Many of the new regulations are in response to worker complaints and concerns, so from now on, employers must ensure all workers have access to face coverings and that masks be given to workers at no cost. On top of this, the state is calling for an increase in the number of hand-washing stations. Right now, those hand-washing facilities can be as far as four football fields away from worker stations. Many agricultural workers, meanwhile, remain on strike, demanding better safety measures and hazard pay. Eso, si se puede. Yakima County grows more apples, cherries, pears, melons, squash, and peppers than any other part of the state. Yakima County also has the highest coronavirus infection rate on the West Coast. Earlier this month, a strike team of infection specialists were deployed there to aid local health officials. Staff from the State Department of Health and the CDC went in focused on helping long-term care facilities in the county where the virus was originally concentrated. But they soon had to start assessing outbreaks and safety conditions at meat and fruit packing plants in the region. Dave Ross spoke with the leader of the strike team, Dr. Scott Lindquist. Dr. Scott Lindquist is with the Washington State Department of, of Health, a specialist in uh, spreading viruses. And so tell me, what, what's the situation that, uh, that you found when you arrived down there uh, on May 11th? Well, we were asked by the Yakima Valley Health District to come and um, assist them with outbreaks. And the big concern for, for us was they have 11 long-term care facilities, of which nine of them were having outbreaks. So they asked us to come in and provide some assistance. And uh, when we got there, we quickly realized that um, probably all 11 had cases. And so we went around to each of these. Um, I actually called someone from the CDC to join us there who is a infection specialist for long-term care facilities. And we went through all these facilities, made recommendations, made sure they had enough PPE, so masks and gowns and gloves and face shields, and then uh, made sure they had enough testing kits. So that was the main driver of going out there. But when we were there, we were clearly um, uh, shown that there's uh, outbreaks occurring in non-healthcare-associated facilities, so things like meat packing plants, the jail, um, fruit packing plants or farms. And so we started working with their team, which has been working on getting out to all these farms and making sure that they have some guidance in place and know what to do if they have a positive employer. Um, but that uh, has become the big driver of, of Yakima's um, case counts is workers in farms and factories. How did this get out of control? Because by May, everybody knew that uh, this was serious, right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's this perfect storm of um, there's lots of disease still in the county and that these uh, settings, these work settings are ideal places to transmit. In some cases, people um, were working shoulder to shoulder. And so uh, we quickly realized that there's a need for this guidance around the state. As this goes on through the summer, as our growing season or the crop calendar, as it's called, um, unfolds over the summer, this is going to affect other counties also. And it already is. We're already starting to see outbreaks in uh, in vegetable processing plants or in fish processing plants, etc. And so we drafted a guidance and cleared this guidance yesterday that was posted on the website. I'm just curious, were these facilities operating in compliance with guidelines or were there no guidelines? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, um, there's a mix. There's a lot of guidelines coming out of uh, labor and industries, Department of Ag, and the governor's office even is releasing some guidance today. So there wasn't that there was a lack of guidance and there wasn't that there's a lack of the employers doing things about this. Some of them that we went in and looked at were, were top notch. I mean, mm-hmm. they were doing the best they could. I think it's a combination of 
folks that work in these factories or farms also have a life outside of work, and there's a lot of transmission that occurs in their um, home settings or uh, any social um, gatherings they may be having outside of work. Well, Well, then were these individuals, these employees, not following the regulations on social gatherings then? Yeah, I think there's a combination of that. It's clearly not all just that. I think um, there is a lot of community transmission that occurs uh, that isn't just um, uh, handled by social distancing. I mean, it really is this this uh, multifactorial approach of distancing yourself six feet from people, wearing a face covering or a mask, uh, washing your hands. And anytime we violate any of those principles, yeah, there's transmission that occurs either in the workplace or in the community. Because I'm just trying to figure out what we can learn from this. People, of course, are itching to get back to work. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, bending of the rules or at least people figuring out how they can get back to a normal economy while still protecting themselves short of being isolated. So have you have you learned anything from your time in Yakima they yeah. could uh, assist us in trying to uh, yeah. thread this needle. So here, here's the <clears throat> number one principle that I've really been aware of. Um, when I am at my home, so I live on Bainbridge Island, and I go to the grocery store. If I am not wearing a mask, I am clearly the odd person out. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everyone is wearing a mask. If you're not wearing a mask, people will give you kind of the, the, the look or the even yeah. say something to you. Um, that's pretty standard in my community. Um, When I go to Yakima, it's pretty much the other way. Um, Most people are not wearing masks or face coverings in public. And I think we need to really address that. So if that means that um, farm or factory workers don't have access to masks, then we need to get them to them. And I know Department of Agriculture and L&I are working on this as well as DOH. We're making it a priority to get these workers uh, the protection they need. And the farm and the factory work, owners are great about this. They're mm-hmm. really happy to have the help. But I think the cultural norm for Yakima needs to change. And people need to start wearing masks when they go to the grocery store. Well, explain store. that. What's behind the, what is the cultural norm in Yakima? I, I mean, I, I understand yeah, I don't that know. I, it's, it's I mostly agricultural, but I don't understand it myself. Yeah, I, I don't understand it either. I can say that um, the hospital system there did a really nice job of a uh, survey of the community to see uh, what percent of folks were wearing masks. And it's about a third um, when they, they were stationed in places like uh, grocery stores or hardware stores, and they, they actually did a survey, and they found about a third of the folks were wearing masks. So how can we um, encourage areas where there's a lot of transmission going on that mask, while it's not the only thing and it's not perfect, um, where, how can we increase the mask use in the general public? And county commissioners need to model this behavior and champion this this behavior. I know the Yakima Health District is starting a media campaign on this, and that'll help, but um, I think we do need to get right to the root of those questions you're asking. What is the reason that only a third of the folks in Yakima are wearing masks, whereas in other counties it's close to 100%. Is the outbreak, would you consider it to be under control at this point? Um, I think it is fairly predictable in Washington State as a whole, but I think Yakima is leading the edge on continuing ongoing transmission. Good luck with your work there. How long do you anticipate being there, Dr. Lindquist? Well, I think we're with Yakima through the long haul. We will give them what they need. There isn't a day that doesn't go by that I am not talking um, with or about Yakima and making sure we're getting any of the state uh, resources we can to them. Dr. Scott Lindquist in Yakima. He's the Washington State Department of Health's epidemiologist for communicable diseases and is leading the strike team that was dispatched to Yakima May 11th to handle the outbreak there. Scott, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. While temporary plant closures because of outbreaks and strikes are causing issues in the supply chain, another looming issue is supply and demand. As restaurants closed their dining rooms to customers, sales plummeted. Some random bar in Belltown, that's their actual name, made the decision early on in the pandemic to stay open. 
owner Mike Mayone decided to continue providing takeout through March and April, but he ended up losing about $12,500 in just a month. Mayone joined Mike Lewis and Aaron Mason on Cairo Nights earlier this month. Mike, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So Mike recently did something that I thought took a lot of guts. Uh, He trotted out all of his numbers from the costs of doing business to the expenses and essentially showed to anyone on Facebook who clicked on his video, and I bet a lot of people did, that it's actually, for some places, more expensive to stay open and do curbside than just to shut down. Mike, can you talk a little bit first about what prompted you to make this video? Yeah, it was, it was pretty pretty nerve-wracking. Uh, I had reservations about disclosing my numbers, uh, but then I just kind of felt like if people want to have honest conversations about what businesses should do, they should look at the honest numbers from a business and, and try to understand what small businesses are dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, we posted the numbers for the entire month, but these are numbers that I evaluate every single day. How do we increase sales and how do we lower costs and is it worth it? So. I just, uh, I just, uh, I guess, summoned the courage to just put it out there. Well, I, I applaud you, Mike, because, I, you know, I've heard these things. I've heard these stories. Mike, as a, as, as a bar, my Mike, Mike Lewis, as a bar owner, uh, also, he, he's talked about this kind of idea, but it wasn't until I saw your video and the numbers that it, it really made sense to me, and I'm hoping that, um, by talking to you today that we can help sort of get this point across to even more people. So would you mind um, briefly sort of running through the the kinds of things that you said on your video? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to April beginning, if we go back to the end of March, um, we were faced with the question, do we uh, stay open for takeout or do we close the doors? And my wife and I decided that we were going to stay open for takeout. We had no idea what our takeout sales would be. We didn't know if we would do $20,000 in sales, $40,000 in sales, $60,000 in sales. We just didn't know. And we were willing to bet on ourselves and take the chance. Um, We knew that if we were going to stay closed, we were going to lose money. We figured if we opened, we could minimize our losses, or the best-case scenario would, would be that we'd be slightly profitable. That would be the best-case scenario. So... Um, we were open for the entire month of April, and if we just round up the numbers uh, from from my Facebook and Instagram posts, we did roughly $40,000 in sales. Um, even doing $40,000 in sales on takeout quarters, uh, our business lost $12,000 in revenue. So that's $12,000 lost out of my checking account. If we had been closed the entire month of April, we would have only lost $10,000. So most people have um, an assumption that if you have sales, uh, you have profit. And the more you sell, the more profit you'll have. And that's true once you get to a certain threshold. But in our instance, if we have zero sales, we lose $10,000. So we had $40,000 in sales, and we lost $12,000. So we actually lost $2,000 by being open. So whether uh, you want to say that it's takeout business or if you were in a state where it was maybe 25% occupancy uh, was where your guidelines are at, uh, that would be a, a rough analogy. Like, is it worth it for a business to be open at 25% occupancy or is it worth it to, for a business to be open for takeout only? And those are those are the numbers uh, from April. and. Now we can make some decisions going forward based on those numbers. But by being in open in April, we are at least now we have a hard set of numbers to work off of, as opposed to just doing theoreticals and projections, especially when you don't know uh, what the potential for takeout business is. Mike, your staff, like mine, makes uh, a fair portion of its money, I'm sure, on tipping. Uh, I assume you have tipping still uh, in some random bar, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, w- would it be at this point? Have you run any of the numbers with your staff people? And would it be worth it for a server who is making X on unemployment plus the bonus right now to come in and work for you in a place with twenty five percent of the tables 
seated? No. Uh, every single one of my servers and bartenders and every single one of my line cooks is making more on unemployment right now than if I were to bring them back in uh, based on the amount of sales and the amount of tips on a nightly basis. Uh, that's because of the $600 bonus. If that bonus didn't exist, uh, I'm sure they would all be eager to come back to work. But the, um, I had talked to my accountant, and he had run the numbers. Um, I have not verified the numbers, but his loose or rough math basically told him that anyone making less than $60,000 a year is actually better off on unemployment in Washington State right now. And what does that mean if, for example, does that, how does that put you or square you with that $600? I mean, on one hand, you want your people to make a living wage and be able to pay rent. On the other hand, there are people who have criticized it saying, well, it reduces the incentive for people to come back to work. Where do you stand on that? Um, well, I don't think there's, there's uh, a blanket answer that applies to everyone. Um, and I think that you know, when a business owner like myself says there's not an incentive to come back to work financially, um, it's not that I'm trying to imply that my staff is lazy. Um, you know, there are certain health risks and concerns involved. I have a server who has a stepson. I have a line cook who has a pregnant wife. So um, they're, they've got to consider, is it worth it for me to work hours, potentially make less money, and risk the health of myself or my loved ones. Um, there's also just yeah the moral dilemma of, of being a business owner and saying, I have, have a small business. I care about my staff. I care about their well-being. Um, do I want them to come off of unemployment and take a pay cut? Um, so I think you got to respect both positions. And like I said, I don't think there's a, a blanket answer for uh, how each individual should should evaluate his or her own case. As an employer, um, I have to wonder how easy it's going to be to get someone to work 10 or 20 hours a week. Um, but if they had a reason not to, um, in in this climate, it's not really my place to judge them for their reasoning. So what's your what's your thinking moving forward? What's What's your sort of game plan at this point? Yeah, so our game plan uh, with our bar is to continue doing takeout. And if um, if the month of May is the same as mo- the month of April, we would lose $12,000. And if I can lose only $10,000 by being closed, people are going to wonder, well, why would you do that? And there's a few reasons. Uh, one is when you evaluate the numbers for April, you see opportunities to save money. So we're certainly going to you know, try to take advantage of as many opportunities to save money as possible. I'm going to try to lessen those losses. And, uh, you know, I've also got hope. I hope things are going to get better. Uh, One thing that was not available to us in April was the PPP program um, that we've just been approved for a PPP loan. I don't have the funding yet, but certainly that has the potential to offset rent, utilities, and labor costs in May, which would then actually make us profitable just doing takeout. Um, And then, you know, when I look back at April, and if someone were to ask me, do I regret losing $2,000 and being open in April, uh, even even the answer to that question is no. Uh, For $2,000, I gained incredible knowledge as far as the numbers of my business. And then I think when you're open and the community sees you working every day, and you get to thank the community for supporting you every day, I think that just strengthens the relationship with the community and increases our chances of being successful when this is all over. I also think that uh, when the general public sees you working every day, they're more likely to support you when you do run a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, I don't think that we would have had uh, nearly the success we did with GoFundMe if we had just closed the doors and we're asking for relief without, uh, you know, the neighborhood and the community seeing us put in the work and seeing us and seeing why we needed that relief. So uh, we're going to stay open in May. We're going to do takeout. Uh, we've got the potential of a PPP loan to help us out. Uh, we've also got the potential with the new um, cocktails to go to increase sales that way. That's kind of our game plan going forward. 
How was your experience with the PPP? Oh, I, I think it's similar to everyone else. It's been an absolute nightmare. Mm-hmm. I've, I had all my paperwork and, and everything all set up the last week of March. I had been contacting both Wells Fargo and a small community bank, making sure that I was set up for April 3rd. April 3rd comes along, Wells Fargo doesn't take my application, and then the small bank that I've been working with uh, sends me an email that they're not going to take my application either because I wasn't an existing client. So then I think on April 7th, I called 18 banks, local banks in Seattle. I only found one that would take my application. So um, I've been, just like many people, struggling trying to be in contact with banks, waiting for news, fearful of the program running out of money. Uh, when it ran out of money on the first wave, it was a gut punch. Uh, certainly, we've had a lot of anxiety leading up until a couple of days ago that the fund was going to run out of money for a second time. But uh, we are in a, a percentage of, of businesses that fortunately have now been approved for that program. I have one last question. Uh, you've been very, very uh, transparent with with your finances, um, and I find that admirable. Yeah. How uh, do did you have some sort of a a cushion to help get you through this time? And and if you did, how did you uh, get that? Oh, there's there's no cushion. Um, it's we flat out. I mean, we are accruing debt. Mm. Uh, we. We are accruing personal debt. We have um, contacted our mortgage company and deferred our mortgage payments for three months, so they worked with us on that. Um, you know, I I can't stress enough the importance of the GoFundMe campaign that we ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in March and April, uh, on our P&L, for those two months, we lost $19,000. Um Fortunately, we raised 16000 in GoFundMe. So the net, I guess, is I'm only missing $3,000 out of my checking account, wow. as our business checking account. Um, if that hadn't been there for us, uh, I don't know if we'd still have the doors open and still be doing takeout. When restaurants do reopen for dine-in service, will customers feel safe to come back? And what would safe dining look like in practice? One pair of restaurant owners decided they didn't want to wait around to find out. They've been a huge part of the local community for years, so they reached out to that community and asked their neighbors, friends, and family what they wanted to see in order to come back. And now they're building it. Rachel Bell has the story. Frank and Sue Ginzali own Frankie's B-Town Bistro, an Italian restaurant in Burien. We grew up here. We see a lot of our high school friends. Sue and I have been dating since the eighth grade. Frank says his family started selling produce at the Pike Place Market in 1928. And he and his wife opened Frank's Quality Produce there in 1979. What inspired you to open a restaurant after so many years with the produce stand? God only knows. <laughs> Ur- urging from all our friends out here. Between the two of us, we know pretty much everybody and everything in Burien. We're here every night. We love it. Thanks to Key Bank suspending their rent, Frankie's B-Town Bistro has been eking by doing takeout with only a couple employees. And what percentage of money are you making now compared to, you know, when you were at full-blown capacity? Like, are you making like 25% of what you were making before or like, what's your number? We never made any money. (laughs) This is a work of love (laughs) or a love of work, one or the other. No, we're only doing 25 of what we were doing before. It's just takeout. Frank and Sue did not open the restaurant to do takeout. They miss seeing their community fill up the dining room with their graduation and birthday parties, enjoying plates piled high with spaghetti and meatballs made with his family's recipes. We're more interested in having our friends and families and stuff come back and enjoy a meal with us. So looking ahead to an eventual reopening, they asked their loyal customers what changes they would like to see. We have about 3,500 people on our email list, and I launched a survey asking our customers what would make them most comfortable dining in with us again. Michelle Smith is the restaurant's wine director. A, people can't wait and B, that they just want social distancing and cleanliness. And so they constructed these partitions in the restaurant around every table and reducing the capacity by 50%. And no one had to tell them to do it. They just did it. So 
I'm really proud of these guys. Frank built wood partitions, making every table into a private booth. And uh, we put plexiglass up around our pizza window, plexiglass partitions in the entryway, lots of plexiglass partitions outside so that people will not come in contact with each other unless they get up and climb over the wall and sneeze on somebody. But it's what our customers want. I think they'll be comfortable with it. We'll be sanitizing tables and chairs after people leave. Staff will be wearing masks and gloves and menus and condiments will be disposable. Honestly, I feel real good about it. I like the way it turned out. We kind of did it on a temporary basis. Everything can be removed if it has to be, but it's uh, very comfortable. I'm kind of excited to see how people receive it. Being a fixture in the Pike Place market since the 1920s, his family's businesses have survived wars and earthquakes, the Great Depression, and recessions. Frank and Sue are all about the long game. We've been married for 52 years, and our businesses are generations old, and that's the way we are. No word yet on when restaurants will reopen, but when they do, the Ginzali family will be ready. Rachel, I'm so glad you you profile these people because I feel like we've heard only from sort of disgruntled business owners during this whole pandemic, and to hear from this this business owner and his staff that they're just they're coming together, they're figuring it out. And this isn't to say that other business owners don't have legitimate you know struggles that they're dealing with, but to hear from somebody who's sort of pulling up uh, their bootstraps and installing these these <laughs> partitions, it's great to hear. Yeah, he just seems like a cheerful person. And I think it pays to be proactive because, you know, I did a story a couple of weeks ago about going to the dentist for the first time since my dentist office opened. And they were only told the day before what the rules were going to be. And so they're like, we hope that we got it all right. Mm-hmm. And so I think since, you know, everybody's learning as they go, the same might be true with restaurants. You know, when Governor Inslee decides that restaurants can open, who knows how much warning they're going to get when they're told, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. So I feel like um, what they did was great. They'll just be ready. I yeah. mean, they might have to make a couple other changes, but they kind of are done and they'll be ready to open anytime. So what do these sort of plexiglass deals look like? Is it like what I see at the grocery store when I go and I see my cashier behind this glass? Is that what's separating the booths right now? No. So the booths are wooden. Um, If you go to mynorthwest.com slash Rachel Bell, you can see a picture of that. Um, The plexiglass is only in certain areas, like Mm -hmm. he mentioned. I wasn't there because, you know, we're social distancing. We're not doing in-person interviews. So um, I can only speak from his description. But he matched the wood to the rest of the decor so that it looks nice. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. People don't want to go in and feel like there's going to be yellow tape everywhere and like plastic wrap and you're at your grandma's house with, you know, the plastic covering on it. So I think that that actually lends to the experience of people feeling comfortable being out. And I think the fact that he asked his customers, because that's what matters is what people want. Like if no one feels comfortable going to your restaurant because of the way it's laid out, then what are you going to do about that? So yeah, definitely a good idea to get response from the public. Okay. Are you comfortable to go to restaurants now at this point with with, with the governor's guidelines in mind? Was, is this something you're comfortable with? Well, just to be clear, so people are listening, it has not been open yet. So right. I am not going to go until it is open. And I don't know, because we haven't heard exactly what it's going to be, have we? Well, uh, phase two, whenever we're allowed to get there, it's uh, less than 50% capacity. Uh, you have to have things like uh, all servers wearing masks. All tables have to be six feet apart. Um, there has to be hand sanitizer readily available, things of that nature. If, if those guidelines are in place, and we get to phase two in King County, are you going to say to yourself, yeah, you know what? I like my odds that I'm not going to catch the virus in a setting like that. I think that I would prefer to eat outside, Mm -hmm. which is a story I'm working on now and I hope to have for you guys by next week Mm -hmm. Um, because so many other cities around the world at this point, but, you know, even on the West Coast, like Berkeley's doing it. Actually, I'm waiting to hear back from Leavenworth. They're starting to do it as well, Mm -hmm. um, allowing, you know, all restaurants to set up tables on the sidewalk. But even more than that, you know, they shut down a street for the farmer's market. So they're saying, well, if you can shut it down for an art fair or the farmer's market or hemp fest or whatever, why can't we do that for restaurants? Because business is not as usual. There's not a bunch of cars. So fill the street up. And then that way, restaurants can operate at more of a full capacity, Mm -hmm. because if they can only have 50% indoors, they could make up for that with the outdoor seating. So I definitely would rather sit outside. Mm -hmm. And I hate to admit this because my whole life is food. I'm obsessed (laughs) and I love eating out. And before this, I ate out probably like four times a week, if not more. 
I don't miss restaurants. And I don't say that because I'm not going to, I will support them and I think they should exist. But I have definitely gotten into the cooking thing, which I loved before, but I feel obsessed with now. And so I don't feel the deep pull to go for the sake of the restaurant. For me, it was more about hanging out with friends. It was like, that's where we socialized was we would all meet at a restaurant. Yeah. So if you're not allowed to dine at a table with other people who aren't in your household, I wouldn't be as interested as going unless I could sit next to my friends. I wonder about this in in the frame of, of fine dining, because going out for fine dining is an experience like that. Um, does this pandemic and these new rules, do you think, does that sort of just ruin the experience of going out? I mean, like you're saying, it's, it's about... It's about the experience. It's not about the food necessarily. When you go to a fine dining restaurant, you don't want your, you know, your server to have a mask on. You don't want to have all these sort of strange, uh, strange little elements in play, like tables being six feet apart. I mean, things like that. I don't think it's. I think it's going to be more s- seamless than that. I mean, yes, someone will be wearing a mask. We're used to that by now already. Um, I don't think anyone's going to say weird that table's so far away. <laughs> yeah. Like people don't mind having space. So you know, I think especially at a fine dining restaurant, the best service is not noticing their service. Mm. So, you know, if you're talking and they're doing just what they did before, they quietly come in and bring things and take things away. Um, I think it should be okay. I don't know. I don't know how much it would affect the experience, but I'm interested to see, you know, how people, how their habits will change, you know, not just for health, but everyone's baking bread. You know, people are taking on these big cooking experiments. And I've heard a couple of my friends say, you know, I realize now that I can cook so well at home that like maybe I don't want to go out as much. And I know that that's sad for the businesses, but people, I mean, you know, they say however long it takes to set a habit. We have been in a habit setting <laughs> amount of time now. So we'll see. And and a lot of people will be out of work, so they right. might not be able to afford to go out. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what the culture yeah. is like. My wife and I, we're big cooks. So even before the pandemic hit, we'd go out every so often. But I'm telling you, Rachel, I am just... I'm dying to go out and just be wined and dined and just, you know, go to a sports bar or something. And just get some beer. You want to be and wine and dine at a sports bar? Well, maybe wine and dine at a fine <laughs> restaurant, but go to a sports bar and just have some wings, have a beer, watch, you know, watch a game. That sounds so fun to me right now. But, what is uh, the place that you will go to first oh when things gosh, open? I what do you miss? I thought about that. Um, there's this Italian joint that I found out in Edmonds, actually. Bucatini. You ever heard of it? I have not. Oh, my gosh. Handmade pasta. Small little joint. It's like... I don't know, maybe 10 tables only there. But um, yeah, that's the first one that came to mind. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I, I, I miss their, their seafood pasta. That sounds really good. Yeah, yeah the thing that my boyfriend and I miss is Chinese food because mm. it is such a communal experience because this place that we love called Chang's up on Lake City Way, the portions are so huge <laughs> that, you know, it's like a sharing food. It's family yeah. style. So you can't go and order three dishes for two people there because you'll be swimming in it for like a week. So I miss sharing food and yeah. eating family style with people. And so that's the one experience that I'm looking forward to. Dim sum. Yes, that's the other. Yeah. Totally. All these. And that's that's interesting, too. I mean, like how will it be when these places? Because that is food designed for exactly. sharing. Yeah. You don't get your own dim sum. No. It's against the law. Rachel Bell, thanks for the time. Thank you. One way to opt out entirely of this supply chain, to lean into the idea of cooking at home with fresh ingredients, is to shop directly from small local farmers. But the very essence of the farmer's markets involves community members coming together So, how does that work when we're told to distance ourselves from one another and stay indoors? This time of year marks peak farmer's market season, and to get an idea of how it's going to work this time around, we're checking in with Kelly Kuby. She's with the Seattle Farmer's Market Association. Hey there, Kelly. Hi. (laughs) So, Kelly, I I assume because we have all these social distancing measures in place, that means that I can't, you know, try out the berries, for instance, before I buy them. Correct. So currently, samples are completely off at the farmer's market until further notice, um, which obviously is completely different than the typical kind of market feel. Um, But at this point, just for health and safety, um, no sampling of any kind. Okay, what else? I I think I've read uh, there are fewer vendors at, at all the markets now. Correct. So 
the current operation, specifically talking about our Ballard Farmers Market, is um, each vendor booth has to be spaced 10 feet away from another vendor booth. So typically we have, I mean, up to 150 vendors, and right now we have 35. Mm. That is a lot to do with just the the distancing factor and making sure not only are we having customers keeping that distance, but vendors are not stacked on one on one. Yeah, how did you choose which vendors are ulti- were ultimately allowed to to partake? Great question. Uh, so we've got uh, many many to choose from, but what we are selling right now at the market are essential foods. So you're going to see your produce, your berries, your meats, cheeses, dairy products. Um, There's no crafts at this time. Um, We represent an open-aired grocery store, so we want to provide healthy and nutritious um, essential foods. And so that's how we've selected our our vendors at this time. Okay, so so take me to, to one of the Seattle farmers markets right now, sort of Explain to me, uh, I haven't been to one yet this year, so I'm not sure how yeah. it works. Uh, do I go up? Uh, am I required to wear a mask? Do I have to wear gloves? Do I obviously have to keep my distance? Sort of paint the picture for me out there. Yeah. So the the great thing about the market right now for the Ballard Farmers Market is there's there's a couple avenues and options that you can choose from. So we have a walk-up version where we form a line um, and the line has social distancing markers so that if you have to wait in line, you've got a space on the pavement that tells you, okay, I'm six feet away from this other person. And we monitor how many people are in in the market at one time. So right now with 35 vendors, we can have two people per vendor booth. Mm. So we're monitoring every single person that's coming in and every single person that's coming out. We also have a drive-through option, which is great because each vendor booth has the ability to serve people that are walking. And on the other side of their booth, they can serve people that drive through. And we have that monitored as well. We can have one car per vendor booth. And we have everyone move in one direction so that we don't have crisscross people kind of coming from all angles. Um, so it moves north to south. And um, each booth, the way that it's set up, if there's a line that forms at each booth, there's social distancing markers. Um, all of our vendors wear masks and gloves. And all of the staff as well wear masks and gloves at all times. Um, people that do come into the market, it's highly, 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 highly encouraged uh, that you have a mask on, but we will not, um, uh, we won't say, no, you can't if you don't have a mask, but we highly, highly encourage you to do so. I know for me, when I go to the farmer's markets, I like to kind of take my time. I like to peruse a little bit, maybe do do a lap around all the vendors, kind of eye what I'm looking at, uh, talk to yeah. talk to the vendors, you know, gather with people. I know a lot of times there's music going on. There's a lot of energy there. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like, you know, that's just not going to happen now. And it, does that take away from just the overall you know, experience? It's a really, it's a great point because the, the one point that's been, um, I don't know if I want to use the word tough, but just different for all of us is that I've kind of had to reconstruct what it is to be a farmer's market. Because like you said, it's like typically it's you're browsing, you meet up with friends and, and you know, you spend the whole afternoon there. And now the tables have turned. We ask shoppers to write a list mm-hmm. and to be efficient with their time and to be quick. Um, so we're kind of reinventing um, what it is to, to be at a farmer's market in this time. Um, but to keep the spirit alive and to keep people in, you know, good health and good spirits, uh, we have uh, staff throughout the market informing people where to go, uh, where the vendors are set up, how to make your shopping experience more efficient. Um, we've got everything set up right now on our online site that kind of maps out who's going to be there this week, how you can pre-order. So we're kind of reinventing a whole new experience, more efficiency um, versus lingering and, um, 
you know, staying all day at the market. In, In times like these during the pandemic, when so many people are hurting, is there an, an extra sort of incentive to to buy local these days? You know, a sense of yeah. community and a sense of pride in, in trying to support the, the farmer's market. Yeah, by shopping at your local farmer's market, you're directly doing that. You're supporting not only the local economy, but also the farmland and the, um, you know, agriculture of this area. You know, if we initially, when we got shut down, the Ballard Farmer's Market, um, you know, we we had a bunch of farmers that had food that was just going to waste. And in a time like this, it was just, it was really, really tough on all of us emotionally because we're like, we've got all this food and they don't have an outlet to sell it. Why in the world is this a thing? Like, why can't we reopen? Um, so, so definitely going to the market right now is, is the thing you should do. I mean, you're supporting, like I said, the local economy, the agriculture of this area. And, and one thing that's really big to think about too, is just the exchange of hands. The farmers are taking the crops out and they're giving them to you. It's different than going to a store where you don't know who's touched or sneezed or, you know, maybe had it in their, their apple in a basket and put it back. Um, there's no touching of the produce at the, the markets right now. So you can be assured that, you know, you have the utmost quality and also less hands are on that food to your, you know, to your table. If you want to visit a farmer's market this weekend and buy directly from a local vendor, a handful of neighborhood ones have reopened with these new precautions. The Madrona Farmer's Market is running on Friday afternoons. The University District Farmer's Market is open on Saturdays. And the Ballard and West Seattle Farmer's Markets are open on Sundays. This has been COVID-19 Seattle. We put out longer episodes like this one every Saturday, hoping to bring you unique and in-depth coverage of coronavirus stories from our community right here in Washington. And a big thank you to all of our guests, the Seattle Morning News team, which includes, of course, reporter Chris Sullivan and his coverage of the potato story in Washington. Dave Ross, who spoke with Washington State epidemiologist and Yakima strike team leader Dr. Scott Lindquist for this episode. You can listen to Seattle's Morning News weekday mornings on 97.3 FM. Also, a thanks to Kieran Ahuja, CEO of Philanthropy Northwest, who's overseeing the Washington Food Fund. Donations have dropped and the need is so great. If you have the resources to donate, please consider doing so. A link is in the episode description below. Also, thanks to Mike Lewis and Aaron Mason from Cairo Nights. Their show has been putting together some fantastic interviews, including the one you heard today with Mike Mayone. You can listen to them on Cairo Radio at 7 p.m. And a big thanks to Rachel Bell. Check out her podcast called Your Last Meal. She interviews celebrities and asks them all about their favorite foods. It's great if you find yourself needing a break from all this coronavirus news. And if you don't need a break from coronavirus news or if you just want it in smaller doses, you can stay with us throughout the week. We put out a daily news recap on COVID-19 Seattle with myself and Dave Ross. This episode was produced by Laura Scott with reporting by Alec Downing. I'm Aaron Granillo. 